Brigands of the Moon by Ray Cummings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Brigands of the Moon by Ray Cummings. Chapter 2 I stood on the turret balcony of the Planetara with Captain Carter and Dr. Frank, the ship's surgeon, watching the arriving passengers. It was close to the zero hour. The level of the stage was a turmoil of confusion. The escalators, with the last of the freight aboard, were folded back. But the stage was jammed with incoming passenger luggage. The interplanetary customs and tax officials, with their X-ray and Z-ray paraphernalia, and the passengers themselves, lined up for the export inspection. At this height, the city lights lay spread in a glare of blue and yellow beneath us. The individual local planes came dropping like birds to our stage. Thirty-eight passengers to Mars for this voyage, but that accursed desire of every friend and relative to speed the departing voyager brought a hundred or more extra people to crowd our girders and add to everybody's troubles. Carter was too absorbed in his duties to stay with us long, but here in the turret Dr. Frank and I found ourselves at the moment with nothing to do but watch. Dr. Frank was a thin, dark, rather smallish man of fifty, trim in his blue and white uniform. I knew him well. We had made several flights together. An American, I fancy of Jewish ancestry. A likable man, and a skillful doctor and surgeon. He and I had always been good friends. Crowded, he said. Johnson says thirty-eight. I hope they're experienced travelers. This pressure sickness is a rotten nuisance. Keeps me dashing around all night, assuring frightened women they're not going to die. Last voyage, coming out of the Venus atmosphere, I... He plunged into a legibrious account of his troubles with space-sick voyagers. But I was in no mood to listen to him. My gaze was down on the spider incline, up which, over the bend of the ship's sleek, silvery body, the passengers and their friends were coming in little groups. The upper deck was already jammed with them. The Planetara, as flyers go, was not a large vessel. Cylindrical of body, 40 feet maximum beam, and 275 feet in length. The passenger superstructure, no more than 100 feet long, was set amidships. A narrow deck, metallically enclosed, and with large bull's-eye windows, encircled the superstructure. Some of the cabins opened directly onto the deck. Others had doors to the interior corridors. There were half a dozen small but luxurious public rooms. The rest of the vessel was given to freight storage and the mechanism and control compartments. Forward of the passenger structure, the deck level continued under the cylindrical dome roof to the bow. The forward watchtower observatory was there, officers' cabins, Captain Carter's navigating rooms, and Dr. Frank's office. Similarly, under the stern dome was the stern watchtower and a series of power compartments. Above the superstructure, a confusion of spider bridges, ladders, and balconies were laced with a metal network. The turret in which Dr. Frank and I now stood was perched here. Fifty feet away, like a bird's nest, Snap's instrument room stood clinging to the metal bridge. The dome roof, with the glassite windows rolled back now, rose in a mound peak to cover the highest middle portion of the vessel. Below, in the main hull, blue-lit metal corridors ran the entire length of the ship. Freight storage compartments, gravity control rooms, the air renewal system, heater and ventilators and pressure mechanisms, all were located here. 
and the kitchens, stewards' compartments, and the living quarters of the crew. We carried a crew of sixteen this voyage, exclusive of the navigating officers, the purser, Snap Dean, and Dr. Frank. The passengers coming aboard seemed a fair representation of what we usually had for the outward voyage to Ferrickshan. Most were Earth people and returning Martians. Dr. Frank pointed out one, a huge Martian in a gray cloak, a seven-foot fellow. His name is Set Miko, Dr. Frank remarked. Ever heard of him? No, I said. Should I? Well, the doctor suddenly checked himself, as though he were sorry he had spoken. I never heard of him, I repeated slowly. An awkward silence fell between us. There were a few Venus passengers. I saw one of them presently coming up the incline, and recognized her. A girl traveling alone. We had brought her from Grabar, last voyage but one. I remembered her, an alluring sort of girl, as most of them are. Her name was Venza. She spoke English well. A singer and dancer who had been imported to Greater New York to fill some theatrical engagement. She had made quite a hit on the Great White Way. She came up the incline with her carrier ahead of her. Gazing up, she saw Dr. Frank and me at the turret window, smiled, and waved her white arm in greeting. Dr. Frank laughed. By the gods of the airways, there's Alta Venza. You saw that look, Greg? That was for me, not you. Reasonable enough. I retorted, but I doubt it. The Venza is nothing if not impartial. I wondered what could be taking Venza now to Mars. I was glad to see her. She was diverting. Educated, well-traveled, spoke English with a colloquial, theatrical manner more characteristic of greater New York than of Venus. And for all her light banter, I would rather put my trust in her than any Venus girl I had ever met. The hum of the departing siren was sounding. Friends and relatives of the passengers were crowding the exit incline. The deck was clearing. I had not seen George Prince come aboard. And then I thought I saw him down in the landing stage, just arrived from a private tube car. A small, slight figure. The customs men were around him. I could only see his head and shoulders. Pale, girlishly handsome face. Long, black hair to the base of his neck. He was bareheaded, with the hood of his traveling cloak pushed back. I stared, and I saw that Dr. Frank was also gazing down, but neither of us spoke. Then I said, upon sudden impulse, "'Suppose we go down to the deck, doctor?' He acquiesced. We descended to the lower room of the turret and clambered down the spider ladder to the upper deck level. The head of the arriving incline was near us. Preceded by two carriers who were littered with hand luggage, George Prince was coming up the incline. He was closer now. I recognized him from the type we had seen in Halsey's office. And then, with a shock, I saw that it was not so. This was a girl coming aboard. An arc light over the incline showed her clearly when she was halfway up. A girl with her hood pushed back, her face framed in thick black hair. I saw now it was not a man's cut of hair, but long braids coiled up under the dangling hood. Dr. Frank must have remarked my amazed expression. Little beauty, isn't she? Who is she? We were standing back against the wall of the superstructure. A passenger was near us, the Martian whom Dr. Frank had called Miko. He was loitering there, quite evidently watching this girl come aboard. But as I glanced at him, he looked away and casually sauntered off. The girl came up and reached the deck. I am in A-22, she told the carrier. My brother came aboard a couple of hours ago. 
Dr. Frank answered my whisper. That's Anita Prince. She was passing quite close to us on the deck, following the carrier, when she stumbled and nearly fell. I was nearest to her. I leapt forward and caught her as she nearly went down. With my arm about her, I raised her up and set her upon her feet again. She had twisted her ankle. She balanced herself upon it. The pain of it eased up in a moment. I'm all right. Thank you. In the dimness of the blue-lit deck I met her eyes. I was holding her with my encircling arm. She was small and soft against me. Her face, framed in the thick black hair, smiled up at me. Small, oval face. Beautiful. Yet firm of chin and stamped with the mark of its own individuality. No empty-headed beauty, this. I'm all right. Thank you very much. I became conscious that I had not released her. I felt her hands pushing at me. And then it seemed that for an instant she yielded and was clinging. And I met her startled, upflung gaze. Eyes like a purple night with a sheen of misty starlight in them. I heard myself murmuring, I beg your pardon. Yes, of course. I released her. She thanked me again and followed the carriers along the deck. She was limping slightly. An instant she had clung to me. A brief flash of something, from her eyes to mine, from mine back to hers. The poets write that love can be born of such a glance. This first meeting, across all the barriers of which love springs unsought, unbidden, defiant sometimes, and the troubadours of old wounds sing a fleeting glance, a touch, two wildly beating hearts, and love was born. I think, with Anita and me, it must have been like that. I stood, gazing after her, unconscious of Dr. Frank, who was watching me with his quizzical smile. And presently, no more than a quarter beyond the zero hour, the planetara got away. With the dome windows battened tightly, we lifted from the landing stage and soared over the glowing city. The phosphorescence of the electronic tubes was like a comet's tail behind us as we slid upward. End of chapter 2